0: Um, Ephesians chapter 1 and, uh, and reading uh, from verse 1 again to verse 14 and I'll explain a little bit of the rationale behind, uh, behind reading all 14 verses in just a couple moments. So uh, Ephesians chapter 1 verses 1 through 14 and then, uh, then we will pray and we will, we will turn to God's Word. Let's read. The scripture says Paul so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is God's word to us today. Let's pray as we turn. And give our attention to it. Father, we thank you for the blessing of being able to read your word. Lord, we thank you for the freedom of being able to assemble in this place. Without anyone impeding us. Without anybody restricting us. Father, we thank you for the freedom of being able to speak your very words without restriction. Father, we pray because the spiritual things of your word are spiritually discerned, we pray that you would give us the ability to see what is written in your word this morning, Lord. So often we can read it, we can give attention to it and not see the, the things which are written there and not see how these things apply to our lives. And so we pray, Father, that you would make the things of your word evident to us this morning. We thank you that though there are many mysteries, the mysteries have been made plain so often. Father, we thank you that though there are many things in your word which are easy to understand, you still have given us things which are difficult to understand. And we thank you for the opportunity to dig deeper and to think and to worship you with our mind as well as our heart. And so we pray, Father, as we come to a difficult and often confusing doctrine, we pray that we would be sure not to go beyond what is written, not to test... Your will beyond your grace, but to see and attempt to understand and perceive what you have written for us, Father. May we see what's in this text. May we embrace it and rejoice in it, Lord, for your glory. We pray that you would teach us now in the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Um. My personal experience uh, with a golden child uh, in the past uh, has not been extensive, but I have I had one of these periods in my life where a, a golden child has arrived. You know, what a, you know what a golden child is? This is uh, a, a, a person who, when they're born, it, it changes everything about the world around them. Their arrival into, uh, into, into space and time transforms the world, And we enter into a, a golden age, per se, of prosperity. Um, my experience with the golden child began in 1999 when my son Sam was born. Uh, he was the first grandson on either side. And I, I believe the first great-grandson to, to be born uh, for some of our grandparents. Uh, and every blessing was poured out on this child. His feet never touched the ground. People volunteered to do disgusting things in the service of him. I will change his diaper. Every ounce of grandparents' attention, uncles, aunts, was devoted to him. Every kindness and every sweetness. And my wife and I were left saying, where were these parents our whole lives, you know? (laughs) Her her parents were absolutely transformed and my parents' priorities just completely changed. And I said, who is this child that he changes things and he is the beneficiary of all of these blessings? It was amazing to me the transformation that took place when the golden child arrived. As we turn to this very long sentence... And in, in the book of Ephesians, the beginning of verse 3, the sentence begins there with the word blessed and runs all the way to the end of verse 14, which ends with to the praise of his glory. In the original Greek, this is one long sentence. Greek had no spaces, no uh, capitalization, or even punctuation. And yet, uh, we are able to understand the meaning of this text. It is one long explosion of praise on Paul's part. What he is doing here is he is seeing, reviewing, looking at every spiritual blessing which has come to us in Christ. The text begins by saying that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that every blessing which is to be had has come to us in Christ. But it would be a mistake to think that because we receive these blessings that we are the golden child. We are the beneficiaries. We do receive these many blessings in Christ. But the result of receiving all these blessings should not be that we think much of ourselves, but instead that we think much of our father. Look at verse 3. It says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. The way that Paul's thought here works is that as we review all that God has done for us, that we review all that has come to us in Christ, that we not turn and say we must be God, that God would treat us like this. Instead, that we would say how good and how great and how glorious and how mighty and how worthy of praise is God for giving all of these things to us. I pray that as we look over the next three weeks, we're going we're to break this sentence down. I pray that it would be our hearts cry that we would say the greatest thing in the world is to be saved. That the greatest thing in the world is to be saved, to have a relationship with God and to have all of the spiritual blessings that there are to be blessed with flowing to us. And that our response would be to say, praise God. Verse 3 it says that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There are a couple ways that we can slice this out and, and look at this. One, we ought to see that these are not physical blessings, but they are blessings which are conveyed by the Holy Spirit. They are spiritual blessings. They're not physically discerned or held on to, but they exist in reality in heavenly places. OK? If you believe in Christ, if you have trusted in the gospel, there are many things that are true of you that you cannot see or discern in the physical world. Let me just name one of them to you. Colossians verse chapter three, verse three says, "For you have died. You've died to sin and to self with Christ on the cross, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God." If you are a believer, if you have trusted in the message of the cross and you have been filled with the Spirit because of the work which God determined beforehand to do in you, you you have died spiritually, even though we were once dead spiritually. We've been raised and united with the life of Christ and our life is now hidden with Christ in God. How in the world would we ever know that if Paul did not tell us? It's impossible to discern this with physical eyes, but the blessing is nonetheless real. My wife and I were at the bank. We were um, cashing in some CDs and things before we, we left New Jersey and, and moved down here. And, uh, and the, the lady behind the counter says, uh, do you have an account here? And I said, no, um, no, I only, have these, I only have these four accounts. And she says, oh, your name is, is listed on another account. And I said, really? <laughs> and, and, and they said, Do you know an Ed and Patricia Meyer? And I said, yes. Yes. And they said, well, you're listed as a beneficiary on one of their accounts. And I said, how much money is in there? (laughs) I had no idea that this was real until somebody pointed it out to me. Right? There is this massive blessing. I have no idea what it is. I'm going to trip. I'm going to break my head. Um, uh, I have no idea what this massive blessing is or if it is small or large. That's not even the point but, but I would have never known had somebody not pointed it out to me. Paul is eager here over this, this course, over these next uh, these, these, this, these, these first opening verses that we would be able to say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is going to spread out and arrange in front of us the many spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. So that we will be able to say, Blessed be. Be God. Now, if you're interested, if you're an outliner or a note taker, let me just, uh, let, me, let me urge you, if you want to really track what I'm going to say here, draw yourself out a grid, okay? Seven boxes across, four boxes deep as we, I'm going to break down this passage in just a second. Let me, let me point out the, the Trinitarian nature of the passage that's, that's coming here, okay? Seven wide four down, yes. Um, Paul begins, he says that God should be blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He uses the word blessing three times. He's kind of priming us for the fact that what we're going to be doing is seeing an extended study of the Trinity here, okay? And what we see then in, in verses 4 through 6 this is this is your first column your your verse column so you can fill in your verses as we as we break them down we see in the in the first uh, the, the first section here verses 4 through 6 we see the person of the father we see the person of the father in verses 7 through 11 we will see the person of the son god the son and then in verses 12 through 14 we will see the person of the spirit Paul is pointing out here that salvation is essentially Trinitarian. It's not just something that Jesus does. It's not just something that the Holy Spirit does or something that the Father does. It's something that the whole of God's being in essence is fully involved in. Okay, you, do, do, do you see that, that, that breakdown there? Four to six, the Father. Seven to eleven, the Son. Twelve through fourteen, the Spirit. We see the action that each member of the Trinity performs what is it that the father does from eternity past he elects and then we see the activity of the son in salvation as he accomplishes redemption on our behalf and then in verses 12 through 14 we see the work of the holy spirit as he seals us i'm going to explain what that means in two weeks when does God perform these actions? We're in column number four, if you're, if you're kind of writing this out. Um, I may print this out and put it in the bulletin next week for you, but uh, struggle through and try to fill it out if I'm being extremely confusing right now. Um, when does God do this? When does God work in our salvation? Well, there's three answers to that. One, the Father elects from eternity past. And then the Son redeems in the historical past. He dies once for all on a cross 2,000 years ago. And then the Spirit engages us in salvation and He seals us in our personal past. How is salvation accomplished? Column number five. Salvation is from the Father. It is by the Son and it is Through the Holy Spirit. Another way that you could view this is that salvation is administered by God the Father. It is accomplished by the Son and it is applied by the Holy Spirit. So, what we're going to do is we're going to break down, last column here, the actions of God in salvation. First, we see God the Father's sovereign selection. And then the Son's selfless sacrifice on our behalf. Since I'm working with S's, we see in verses 12 through 14, the Holy Spirit's spiritual sealing of us. The result of this, as we hit verse 14 in just two weeks, as we, as we range over this terrain and we view all of these spiritual blessings, the purpose of the passage is that we would well up in our hearts and we would bless And praise God. Look at verse 6. Paul says that that, that we are predestined to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace that we would say, yes God, this is good. We have obtained an inheritance in Christ. Why? Verse 12. So that we might be to the praise of his glory. And then in verse 14, the Holy Spirit is our guarantee of our inheritance of salvation to the praise of God's glory. The purpose of this passage, the main application of everything that I'm going to say for the next three weeks is this. It's not go and do. It's not be. It's praise, rejoice, be excited and delight in what God has done for you on your behalf in Christ. This morning, what I would like to do is to review four blessings. Four blessings. Uh, and we're going to have some help from our, our good friend Becky. She's going to put these up on the wall as we go through them, uh, one at a time, as we as we break them down. And I just want to I want to put them up on the wall over the next three weeks, and I'm praying and hoping that that as you consider who you are in Christ and you consider what God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have done for you in Christ that, that this will be a visual reminder that will well up within you in praise. So we're going to see four blessings this morning. The first one is election. And then we're going to see that the other three are tightly tied to it. The first blessing is election. We see it here in verse three. Um, or, sorry, verse four. Paul says that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing. And then he says, even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world. Now let me just share with you some truth in advertising. Election and predestination are Bible words. Okay? They're not words that are owned by a particular camp of, 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 uh, of, of Christianity. There are some people who you may know what Calvinists are, and you may know what Arminians are, and you may say, oh, is Keith getting all Calvinist on us? Um, Truth in advertising, I like Calvinists, okay? If you don't know what this means, don't worry about it. I like people who are of the Reformed faith, but election and predestination are Bible words, okay? They're not words to fight over. They're in the Bible. They're not words which declare that we're of a particular camp. And we are bound as Christians who are, who are called to take up this word as the guide for our salvation. We are called to be biblical, to think biblically, not to look at doctrines and to say, oh, I choose that side, or I choose this side, or I don't like this idea, and so I choose not to believe it. In my heart, I don't like the idea that I'm a sinner who needs to be redeemed by God's grace. It doesn't make it any less true. So I pray that what I say this morning, that you would view it through lenses of grace and blessing. And allow yourself to see Paul's perspective on this. And don't allow the devil or your own flesh to pierce the beauty of this doctrine with the harsh logic of fairness. Now, I want to I alert you to an opportunity. In two weeks, the word predestined is going to show up again in our text. And that means that if you've got questions about predestination or election Or God's sovereignty, that now is a perfect time to ask them because they're going to come back up in two weeks again. And so we'll have another opportunity to review this. So please email, call, write, send smoke signals. Let's have a discussion. This will be great. Let's talk about the definition of the blessing of election. The definition is simple God chose all those who are in Christ. God chose. God chose whom he would save. When does this happen? Verse 4 says that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And so the blessing of election is this. It involves God's gracious choice of some individuals who would believe before the foundation of the world. Now, what is his motive here? Is God's motivation to be exclusive or to be unfair? No. His motivation, verse 4 tells us, is love. It says in verse 4, In love, he predestined us for the adoption as sons. Verse 5 says that God does this according to the purpose of his will. You could also translate this word his pleasure. Or I really like the way the NAS renders it. He, He uses the phrase the kind intentions of God's will. Election. God's choice that some would be saved is performed in love. I appreciate this saying by a pastor, a pastor named Pastor Wood. He says, any interpretation of this mysterious doctrine that detracts, and I would add, that ignores the love of God is rightly suspect. If we ignore the fact that God chooses, and it is motivated not by a desire to treat some unfairly, in quotes, or anything short of God's gracious love, we will miss the entire point of the doctrine. We will twist it. But let me point this out. The reason that anyone can praise God, the reason that anyone can rejoice in the salvation which Jesus purchases on the cross, the reason that anyone will be able to turn in blessing after they absorb the ideas that Paul is communicating here is that God's love for us had no beginning and that it will never end and that there is nothing that we can do which will cause God to no longer love us. Because before time began, before a single molecule was stitched together in the creation of the world, God said, I love these. And if you believe in Christ, you are among that number. We ought not to view it as exclusive But as God's saying, I determine before all time with a love that never begins and a love that will never end that I vow, I determine that I will save these. That is such good news. When you struggle with doubt, when you despair that you will ever win, a war against your flesh, a battle with the temptation. You say, how could God love one such as me? The good news is it doesn't depend on who you are or what you do because God loves you. He loves you. And he has loved you from before your great-great-grandpa met your great-great-grandma. Before somebody could even chart a generation or two ahead and say there would be a Keith or whoever you are, God determined from eternity past to love you, and He set His affection on you, and He said, This one will be saved. That's the motive. Of election. There is a necessity to election, and that is that we are born dead in trespasses and sins. And if we don't begin life from that place, we certainly accumulate it as life goes on. Let me point you to two places in this book that that highlight this doctrine. Look at what Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 19 say. Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Before we are believers, before our minds and hearts are opened to the reality of what God has done for us in Christ, our minds are futile. It means that they're not functioning properly. They are not accomplishing their purpose. Look at verse 18. They, that is Gentiles who do not know God, they are darkened in their understanding. It's like being in a room with the lights out. You may be able to kind of put your hands around and and try to map your way and maybe figure some little bits of information out, but it's not like having the light on and seeing things plainly. The mind is darkened. Before we know the gospel, we are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in us. Due to our hardness of heart, the truth cannot penetrate. Paul says they have become callous, and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Flip back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 5. Paul says, And you were dead, spiritually dead before God in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. I imagine a giant wagon wheel rut that you cannot escape from, that we are locked into this pattern that we cannot get out of. You can go forward, you can go backward, but you're never going to get anywhere you need to go. Following the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And now here, the goodness of the blessing of election as we move to verse 4. But God. But God being rich in mercy. I think of a box full of coins just overflowing and they all say mercy on them. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. Each and every believer who has ever been, from the foundation of the world until now, Each and every person who will spend eternity worshiping God has heard the voice of God say to them, Arise from spiritual deadness and become alive. And no one can praise Him apart from that. We ought not look at this and say that is unfair or narrow or mysterious. Instead, we should say, I was so lost that there wasn't even a point of light by which to orient myself until God broke through. And that should overflow in us to praise. What is the purpose of the blessing of election? It has two purposes. The first is a moral purpose. Look at verse 4. Paul says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. The idea of being before God doesn't have something, it's not a time-oriented word, but a position-oriented word that we should be worshipers before God. Genesis 50 verse 18 uses this phrase of people bowing down before Joseph in fear. His brothers, as he's revealed his identity, they bow down before him. Psalm 96.9 says that we ought to come before the Lord and bow down. We're to be holy and blameless as worshipers for all eternity. To be holy is to be set apart exclusively for God's use and to reflect, to radiate his glory and to be blameless. This purpose of election to be blameless is to be free from any blemish or stain. And this is where I bump up against the wall and I think election isn't bad news. My moral state is bad news. Because I am neither 100% holy nor am I free from blemish. And I don't think even on my best days I would say I am 25% free. I find such horrid things inside myself. I think that if God did not determine from before creation to save me and that I would walk with him and follow him, that I would have abandoned the faith long ago in despair. God's purpose in election is that we might be holy and blameless. Colossians 122 says that Jesus has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. Why? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him that is his purpose and we may feel that, that is bad news as we look to ourselves and we say we are not holy nor are we blameless but this is good news because this word blameless and this word holy are used to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ himself Hebrews 9:14 says how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God 1 Peter 1 verse 18 and 19 says you were ransomed from the futile ways we're going to break that open next week as we look at the sun. you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Here's the bad news that's related to the good news. Have you ever had something? A dog. A pot. A child. Perhaps yourself that was just so covered with dirt and stain and wretchedness. You don't just give up in despair that you're in a dirty condition. But you go and look. Look. For that which can clean you. And God has provided that to us in Christ. We are elected, chosen in him that we might be holy and blameless. And not only does God redeem us with one who is holy and blameless, but he has the power to make us holy and blameless. Jude 24 says now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you, to deliver you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Jude goes on and praises God because God is able by his power and by what he has done through Christ to present us in his presence, blameless with great joy. Finally, I find in the New Testament the word blameless used to describe our position and our potential before God Revelation 14.5 describes a group of believers and it says of them, in their mouth no lie was found for they are blameless. As I consider that God's election of myself and of you and of every believer is that he would make them holy, it fills me with great joy knowing that one day I will be able to stand in his presence and say, I am holy and blameless because he has redeemed me. Election has a moral purpose. We are not clean. We are not holy. But God desires to make us holy. The people of God made blameless by the death of the Son of God who has been forever blameless. Election also has a sanctifying purpose. And here's where we get to the blessing of predestination. We are predestined to an image. The word predestination, I think, is is fancy. You know, you you might think I could never understand what that means or it's tricky. It just means this, that your destiny was plotted out, was planned before there was ever a moment of your entire life. We see in super spiritual movies, right, you know, or or movies um, which are less than spiritual but are filled with coolness like Empire Strikes Back as Darth Vader holds out his hand to Luke and he says, come and join me and together we will rule the universe. It is your destiny, which he's saying this is the goal for which you were created. As a believer, you have a destiny. You were elected to it. You are predestined to become conformed into the image of God's Son. And your purpose is that you might glorify Him. God deserves, because of His purity and His clarity and His holiness, He deserves worshipers who are blameless and holy. And so we see that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son which also involves another blessing, the blessing of adoption. Romans 8, 28 through 30 describe the destiny of every believer. If you take refuge in verse 28 of Romans 8, then follow it through through verse 30. Paul says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, those who he knew before time, those whom he elected, I think you could say, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If God calls you and chooses you and draws you to himself, you will attain holiness by God's grace. That is such good news. Does that well up in your heart with praise? There's an error of assumption that we can make in relation to the doctrine of election. We can assume too much. Let me just point out that even here, Paul does not take the so often pursued road of objection that many have to the doctrine of election. Okay? Election does not relieve us or anyone of their obligation to receive and believe the gospel, nor would I say it is biblical to say that one cannot receive and believe the gospel. because of the doctrine of election. That's not a biblical category. Look at verse 13. Paul says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed. We must hear. We must believe. And then we will receive the benefits. And so we need to hold this truth intention i have learned i believe to live with a degree of ambiguity here instead of trying to crucify the text of scripture with logic let us not be cruel calvinists who says if god do who say if god does not love you from all eternity then he must hate you because i don't see that as god's revealed heart in the scriptures but let us also not be mushy weaklings who imagine that God is up in heaven not caring about all men or women or who is desperately wringing his hands hoping that some might choose him and he might be saved. Like a girl who could never hope to be prom queen. That's not God. God. God is sovereign, he is king, he is loving, he is gracious, he is merciful, and he has chosen before all time to give life to some by his gracious plan and choice, and yet they are required to believe. This cannot, I believe, be denied or explained away. If we go to either extreme, we will leave the clear teaching of Scripture. Let me read you a quote from Jab Packer. He says this, using the word, he's going to use the word antinomy, which means a apparent contradiction between this and that, okay? Where there is no actual contradiction. That's antinomy. Uh, I've never, ever seen this word anywhere else. Um, He says, the particular antinomy, which concerns us here, is the apparent opposition between divine sovereignty and human responsibility, or putting it more biblically between what God does as king and what he does as judge. Scripture teaches that as king, God orders and controls all things, human actions among them, in accordance with his own eternal purpose. Scripture also teaches that as judge, he holds every man responsible for the choices he makes and the courses of action he pursues. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are taught side by side in the same Bible. Sometimes, indeed, in the same text. And I would put up brackets here and say, even here in this passage. Verse 4 and verse 13. Both are thus guaranteed to us by the same divine authority. Both, therefore, are true. It follows that they must be held together and not played off against each other. Man is a responsible Moral agent, though he's also divinely controlled. Man is divinely controlled, though he is also a responsible moral agent. God's sovereignty is a reality, and man's responsibility is a reality too. Let me encourage you. Many of you who have spouses who are not believers, many of you who have parents who are not believers, or children who are not believers, do not allow this idea to bring you to a point of despair with regards to your own evangelism. Don't let it sap you of your will to pray or to share the gospel with others. Instead, let this be a tremendous blessing welling up inside you because if someone responds, it will be because God has chosen them and said you will come and nothing they do will prevent them. And not from the sovereignty side, but from the responsibility side, urge and plead and beg people to be reconciled to God and use arguments and illustrations and scriptures and plead with them and say, respond to the grace of God. But don't allow logic to rob this truth that salvation is a blessing from God. Jonah 2.9 says salvation is of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 27 through 30 teaches that salvation is all of grace. Oh, find joy in this. Verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 1 says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. We ought never, as believers think, because I am elect, I am better than others. I look at myself and I say, Why would you choose me? Why? Why? And I could find no answer other than God's gracious love and mercy. God chose what is foolish to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. If God can save some 22-year-old fool who mocked him and despised him, then he can save anyone. And I have no reason to ever look at anyone and say that person is undeserving of God's grace. Instead, I look to him and I say, you are good and you are merciful because I do not deserve your love and mercy. Verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 1 says... And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Everything that we need to stand in the presence of of God the Father for eternity, we receive from God the Father. And so we can say, Thank you, Father, for your blessing of us. In my last few minutes, let me highlight one more blessing. We'll come back to adoption in just two weeks in, in, a, in, a, in a greater degree. Um, but let me point out the goal of God's electing, predestining, adopting purpose. The blessing is grace. Verse 6 points out that we are called to the praise of God's glorious grace. Look at what it says next. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. You could translate the word be graced if we spoke like that in English. God has be graced us in the beloved. He has given us his grace in his son. This is so good. The strong love of God is determined to share with his children every. All blessings which he lavishes on his natural son. The adopted ones, the ones who are brought into the family by God's grace, the ones who by nature are dead in trespasses and sins and children of wrath, these ones are adopted into the family and treated as if they were the son who never sinned. Can you imagine that? The fellowship and the abundance of love that God displays towards His Son who never sinned, but always said, yes, Father, I live for your glory from eternity past, God chooses to share every blessing, every blessing, in the same way. The adopted ones share in the blessings shown to the Son from eternity past throughout eternity future And your election guarantees that it will be so. So can you say with Paul, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you have not trusted in Christ's work on the cross today, and maybe you're thinking, well, maybe I'm not elect. Maybe you are. Do you desire to spend eternity enjoying the blessings of God. I believe if Jesus himself were standing here, he would say, repent and believe in the gospel. Forsake your sin and trust in Christ. If you are a believer and you're here this morning, I believe the right response to this, and you may need to push through the logic barrier. I believe the sound that results from that would be the white hot Joy that erupts in the saints who are saved, knowing that it was determined by the love of God from before all time and nothing we can do can stop it. Let the circle be unbroken. What comes from God, spiritual blessings, should return to Him. He has blessed us. Let us bless Him with praise. The scriptures say bless the Lord, all you people of the Lord. Let us say with David in Psalm 103 Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, four of which are listed on the wall. Five more to come. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, O oh, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will, bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me to him? Father God, I pray that my brothers and sisters have been well served in the preaching of your word this morning. I do not know how to quantify or to boil down things which my brain is too small for. But I pray that as we lay out the clear teaching of your word, as we gather the scriptures and we set them (coughs) forth, I pray that hearts and minds will be one to the idea that Paul is not afraid, nor does he teach exclusivity or hatred or coldness on your part, but he teaches warm, gracious, embracing love. And that that love overflows in praise. And may that be our response as well. Father, we pray... That we would not be those who peer into the deep things of God, the deep mysteries of salvation and walk away saying, so what else is there? But that we would instead be moved to praise. That we would be moved perhaps even to tears when we consider our own sinfulness and your grace toward us. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who has not trusted, who has not embraced You fully, I pray that they would see the beauty of Your love for them in calling You, calling them to Yourself from eternity past. Father, and I pray that You would break their heart for joy and that they would trust in you, that they would repent of their sins and follow you all of their days. Father, may the praise not stop with the end of our singing, but may it resound in our behavior as we go forth from this place this morning. Father, we thank you. We love you. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.